Hello, I'm John Cameron, and welcome to Musicology. There's a style of music, though. You think of, uh, of Leonard Cohen, Ian and Sylvia, you. But my music is nothing like any of theirs. No, but I th okay, maybe, maybe not, but I mean, they, they, I think they share rooms in the same house. Because they're Canadians? No, but I think that in terms of some of the music was initially when you started, some of it was derived from folk. I think that was a common I element. I wouldn't put myself in that group. It would be what's wrong with this picture. If anything, I have a relationship to Leonard. Gordon Lightfoot is another person. No relationship to Gordon Lightfoot. I'm much more related to Miles Davis and Edith Piaf. If you want to put me in a group, I'll tell you, nobody ever puts me in the right group. You want to know the group I should go in? The black press gets it to put the desire to write with more content with a desire for a more complex melody was my creative objective. For anyone that can claim to know anything about music, Joni Mitchell is one of the greatest artists of all time. In 1977, she had eight albums to her name, each more remarkable and innovative than the last. Somehow undertaking a smooth transition from folk to jazz, her powers of adaption seemed unfettered, with little to no indication on what she would progress to next. And I was still searching for a band that could play my music to my satisfaction. Harmonically and rhythmically, my music was eccentric. And as it turned out, it was only musicians who had a jazz background that could comprehend the voicings of the music, which weren't just majors, minors, or seventh chords, but they were eccentric. I guess that's something I... And, and jazz musicians could pick up on it, so it was jazz players that, that I laminated my music with. And in the process, I fell into a circle of those players, and I began to spend more and more time in jazz clubs. It was the beginning of, of a jazz education, which started back in my teens. And it progressed and followed and, and led along to Mingus's request that I work with him on that project. Jazz legend Charles Mingus was dying, diagnosed with ALS, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease. But in a true artist's mentality, he became attached to the notion of a final project. He and his wife Sue began to deliberate on how best to execute such an opusculum, with consideration to Charlie's limitations brought upon by his illness. Joni had just released a couple of albums that had veered into, by that point, the very broad jazz genre. As successful as her pursuits would later be regarded, she received a lot of criticism for doing so at the time. The only thing that bothered me about it was there was a reoccurring word that would come up. That's the only thing I can remember negative, and that was that it was pretentious. And that really bothered me because I thought the use of that particular word was for anybody else who wanted to stretch out, for anybody coming up alongside or behind me, you know, I thought that that's a very bad attitude for experimentation. Her work, labelled as pretentious back then, regarded as genius now. You know, and then I thought, well, the Americans don't have a very good command of English. Perhaps they meant apprenticeship. <laughs> <laughs> The stars were perfectly aligned for a partnership of sorts between Mingus and Mitchell. Time was short, expectations were high, the result was, for many, unsettled. Even now, 40 years later, a masterpiece for both catalogues that still divides. But actually, they were putting you in a box. They, they wanted you to remain their jolly old singer-songwriter, didn't they, from 1970 or something? It's the same even with Friends. Change in an individual is not heralded by those around them, you know. Um, the other thing was that there were many critics who I thought were ill and informed and missed the point of what I was trying to do in that they wanted me to be like Ella or they wanted me to be like, they would compare me unfavorably to existing masters, you know. And I, I thought, well, I don't, they've done what they've done, you know. If I'm going to come into this new arena, I should bring in some some fusion, you know, like my roots are different, therefore I should be dragging some of my background behind me. Through it all, you're still Joni Mitchell. To, you you to have to retain it. that, yes. Right. Joni Mitchell's 1977 album, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, is an experiment with no predicted or foreseeable outcome. Musically, it's intimidating. If you can process the lyrics, it's confronting. But it's also profoundly alluring. Don Juan's Reckless Daughter was an experimental project uh, it's spotty and it's double and nobody can ever really wade through and digest a double album it seems. Arguably the opus of the album and perhaps her career, 
Paprika Plains is Mitchell narrating a meeting of Indigenous Canadians in a bar, describing the afflictions of homelessness and alcoholism, but never once swaying from the true beauty of the people and the Canadian environment. Well, what happened there was I got sick again, and I spent a year in bed, and a couple of months in hospitals, and, and then in bed. And one day I got up and I went to my piano, and I sat down, and I could not hit a wrong card. I was like a savant, you know? I called up my dear Henry, who was my engineer for many years. I said, Henry, you know, I don't know what's happening, but I can't hit a wrong chord. got to go into the studio he said well I'm sick I said well so am I what's wrong with you <laughs> you know he said well I've got bursitis so I said well you know I'm just getting over abscessed ovaries and I'm coming back you know to life and I'm gimping along let's go in so we limped into the studio in the January and I did four passes of improvisation one was 29 minutes, one was 30 minutes, one was 31. They were all basically 30 minutes. Out of it came two hours of improvised music, and we edited it. We didn't have Pro Tools then, which would be much more efficient. We had to cut tape, and I'd have to go, cut there! <laughs> so it was kind of inexact, you know? We'd rock the tape, we'd cut it, and we'd splice it and tape it together. And it's changing keys, because I was going from all over the place, you know, and resolving back to sea. No matter where I went, I could always get, wander my way back to sea, right? <laughs> and it had a kind of an Irish quality, and uh, I, I don't know. It was just... So that sat in the can. Then in August, I wrote a song, and I cut it open in the middle and stuck the instrumental in it. Then I said, Henry, we gotta go to New York to put on the strings. So we limped into New York, we went into this church and we put the strings on, but the strings start in, okay, the song was cut in August, then it goes to the January part and there's a splice, then it goes back to August. So the strings are bowing across where January meets August and they go out of tune. So I said to the professor that wrote the score from Berkeley, you've got to cut the arrangement here, open it up because I'll show you on the tape, we're going across the splice and the strings are pulling away in terms of intonation. And they went, you know, women hear things kind of, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like you always have to get rid of opera singers when they have their period, they start hearing things, you know? No, it's true. In addition to all of the technical and compositional trickery, if you read the lyrics in the liner notes of Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, where Joni stops singing, the words continue during the instrumental section. Well, I had a dream. I was out on rolling thunder. And in the dream, I was in a helicopter. I was flying over a landscape that was like paprika silt, you know, like Arizona or something. Red soil, but very powdery and not a lot of foliage and there was a red cliff and at the bottom there was a red sandbar and a silt and there was a little band of Indian men, young Indian men in plaid jackets and sleeping bags. One was blue, one was green with a red lining and the older Indians with the gray hair had their braids still and they had chief's blankets on and as the helicopter went over they all looked up with no expression on their faces and the, the wind flapped their braids and we flew over them and oh and one of them was in a squatting position with a gray chief's blanket on and he suddenly jumped up and put his hand in the air like liberty like this and away on the horizon an atomic bomb went off but so small but then it morphed into a golf tee with a big balloon that i had as a child which was like plasticine colors it was muddy 
rubber. We used to have to patch it all the time at the gas station. You know, we'd have to go and get a patch put on it. It morphed into that, and that got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it morphed into an Earth-like planet, which came rolling towards the helicopter. And until it obscured all of the glass of the helicopter, and I got sucked into the frame as an adult, but naked. And it was almost like an early mammary memory, you know, like Mother Earth, and banged against this ball globe Earth. That was the dream. And so when I was playing the instrumental music, that's what I was thinking about. It was kind of the visuals that were going on inside my head. And when I wrote the song, it takes place in a dance hall where, with a galvanized roof and the rain is coming down. And this is very Saskatchewan. I played in a club and during our set, Chuck Mitchell and I, it began to rain and the whole audience got up and went outside to watch it come down. And we went with them. a dancing fool as from 12 to till I left home in 19 and it turned into all those dumb froogy frog monkey dances you know but when it was the Lindy Hop or the Har Harlem Lindy partner dances I was active and was always in dance halls that I wasn't supposed to be in public dance halls you know? and there was a smell in there of cheap perfumes and beer and girls who threw up and who had too much you know and so that's all kind of in the song as well and the natives congregating on Railway Avenue as they did in most cities and drinking if they could or licking shoe polish if they couldn't and drinking anything that they could get the alcohol out of. And I remember as a child in Maidstone, redskin Indians, mahogany people, coming to town in their beaded leathers to trade and they would trade their leathers for flour and stuff like that. Yeah, all of those things kind of come together and make up that text. The rain retreats Like troops to fall on other fields and streets Meanwhile they're sweet-talking and name-calling And brawling on the fringes of the floor I spot you through the smoke With your eyes on fire from J&B and Coke As I'm coming through the door I'm coming back, I'm coming back for more The band plugs in again You see that mirrored bonding into later I got an idea for a tag and I did that live and we cut it on to the end. Ultimately, Paprika Plains would be more than Joni once again proving her genius. Charles Mingus would hear the piece enchanted by its improvised piano playing, and make contact. That was mostly the extent of his knowledge of her work, and likewise with Mitchell Tomingas. 
it was done like a film. It was done on location in different spots. Well, when I met Mingus and I went up into his building and the door opened, his wife said the first thing he said to me was, you're that skinny-ass folk singer. <laughs> but it, the first thing I remember him saying was, the strings on Paprika Plains are out of tune. And I went, yeah, can you hear that? You know, Mingus and I immediately... You bonded, bonded. over bad information. Yeah, yeah, he could hear it. He had the perception. Charles and his wife Sue felt that Joni, with her inimitable lyricisms, proclivity to explore new music, and dispersions from the music press and jazz snobs, would be an appropriate fit for that final project. Although Mingus would initially have a vision for the collaboration that was not suited to Joni's style. He, when he discovered he was dying, he called a friend of his who was not a religious person by any stretch of the imagination. And he said, Daniele, I'm dying. I want you to come over here and talk to me about God. And Daniele said, oh, you're talking to the wrong person. So he went out and he bought him um, T.S. Eliot's quartet. Charles tried reading it. And Charles's wife was quite literary. She belonged to, um, she had a New York magazine of some kind. Anyway, she read it to him and translated for him. So he gets this idea that he wants to do a piece of music with an Englishman with an Oxford English accent reading from the quartet, mm -hmm. pausing and then me paraphrasing it, spoken, against this cacophony of a full orchestra, and he wanted me to play lead acoustic across it. So I went out and I got the quartet and I read it and I said, Charles, I, I can't condense this stuff. I, I'd rather paraphrase the Bible than, than this. You know, I, I think I can see <clears throat> where his inspired lines are and where his filler is. I think I can see what I could take out, but Somehow or other, the filler is the necessary chain. I, I can't do it. Charles would dispense of that idea. So he wrote six songs, which he called Joni 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Instead, his instrumentals would provide guidance for Mitchell to do what she does best, lyrics. What's often not appreciated about the project, even with acknowledgements of its eccentric nature, is that Joni was frequently writing and singing to instrumental solos a difficult task for a writer and singer. Another point of contention between the two is that Joni embraced jazz fusions of both acoustic and electric instruments. Charles played an upright bass until he couldn't. This conflict of styles from the perspective of someone trying to write a person's epitaph to the subject of that epitaph would result in multiple versions of each song being recorded as the discovery for the ultimate balance or resignation was found. This next song is also Charlie's Melody and uh, really the story is his too. So when I sing this, imagine me pissed off and romantic and seriously ill hopefully not finally ill, and uh, staring out the window of the 44th floor of a building in New York that overlooks the Hudson River. The rain slammed hard as bars It caught me by surprise Muds of the planet and shook me down for alibis I'm waiting for the keeper to release me Debating this sentence Biding my time And when I went out to visit him, he there was one melody that jumped out at me which became a song called Chair in the Sky. That was the first one I liked and I said, what kind of a theme do you hear? What subject matter do you hear for this? And he looked at me really wryly, like this, this real wry expression. That's about the things I'm gonna miss. Manhattan holds me to a chair. 
that song is pretty much about, you know, he's talking about next time I, when I come back, I'll be bigger, I'll be better than ever, I'll be rich as Standard Oil. And it was, it was like Rumpelstiltskin, you know, guess my name, you know, what am I going to miss? <laughs> gifts Mitchell with a copy of his autobiography, Beneath the Underdog. In it, there's a story of Mingus and his wife Sue before their relationship truly bloomed. She asks, how would you approach life, and if you could do it all over again? His response was selfish, claiming that he wouldn't fall in love, he would be ruthless to others and focus only on his money. Mingus then writes, and if she believed that, she would never have become my wife. Things I wish I'd done Some friends I'm gonna miss Beautiful lovers I never got the chance to kiss Daydreaming the pain of living Processions of missing Lovers and friends Fade And they fade out again In these daydreams of rebirth I see myself in style, raking in what I'm worth. Next time, I'll be bigger. I'll be better than ever. I'll be resurrected royal. I'll be rich as standard oil. She submitted a tape to him the moment it was done. He loved it. However, Joni wasn't happy with the vocal performance and decided to polish up the track, making it more congruous with what would become the rest of the album. I think he was very surprised that I would have that insight into him, and yet at the same time, intuitively, he knew I would. He must have, otherwise he wouldn't have called. For a short time, A Chair in the Sky would be the project's title, protested by Mingus's wife, Sue, for the perceived physical representation of Charles in his final days. She wanted him to be remembered as a lively genius, rather than lacking physical or mental mobility. It was a great opportunity to study with a great teacher. I felt that it was meant to be in that I've been sticking my big toe into the lake of jazz, metaphorically, and Charles pushed me right in. Goodbye Pork Pie Hat is a jazz standard composed by Mingus in 1959 as an elegy for the recently deceased saxophonist Lester Young. Charlie assailed me with all kinds of Lester Young history what Lester's father was like, his, how he grew up. He played me a lyric that had been set, you know, Goodbye Port by Hat at that point was a song that had been around for a number of years already without lyrics. And Hendrix had set words to them. 
and Hendrix was one of my teenage heroes. So he played me this version that Hendrix had written, and he watched me while I listened to it. Charlie was looking at me, and it was awful. It was maudlin. It was like, you know, oh, the poor black guy on the chitlin circuit, right? It was like not good. When it was all done, Charlie looks at me, and I said, it's awful, isn't it? It's awful. You know, I was surprised because yeah. if there's anybody that can write good lyrics, he's the guy to jazz, right? So then he gives me, he gives me about five or six versions of Pork Pie Hat. Tells me to take my choice. Each one has a different solo. I picked one that, that I liked the solo the best in, and it had a passage of triple tonguing in it. So I said, well, I like this one the best, but I suppose you want me to set lyrics, you know, to this section too. He says, yeah. Well, it's humanly impossible, you know. So not only was it hard to it was hard to memorize that melody. It was like an aria, you know, it was very complex, that solo. Sure. When Charlie speaks of Lester, you know someone great has gone. The sweetest swinging music man had a porky pig hat on. A bright star in a dark when the band stands at a thousand ways of refusing a black man admission, black musician, in those days they put him in an underdog position. Embedded in Charlie's recollections of Young is a narrative of observed change from and for the perspective of two black men. As the lyrics were penned by Joni, she integrated her own experience of the time, which was essential to completing the double tribute. I'm a stickler for the word being married to the melody without messing with English inflection. So if, if, if a word has a certain emphasis on a certain syllable, the melody has to too. So part of, between the difficulty of the melody to begin with and this, you know, standard to my craft, it was a nightmare of this thing. And then, in the telling of the story, what am I going to tell? I decided that all three of us were going to be in the song, that Lester was going to be in it, that Charlie was going to be in it, and that I was going to be in it also, as a narrator. When And drove them from their hotel bed. Love is never easy. It's short of the hope we have for happiness. Bright and sweet, love is never easy street. Now we are black and white embracing out in the very unlikely we'll be driven out of town Or be hung in a tree That's unlikely Again, it's important to note that Joni's writing and vocal are accommodating to the base material of what's around it, not the other way around. The instrumental and vocal are towing the line of a conversation that only few musicians can make intelligible. Tonight, Perceptions they have been handed day by day 
generations on down. I had it all written, but I couldn't get the last verse. And Charles was dying. I mean, he was deteriorating rapidly, and I wanted so much to have this completed before he died. You know, I wanted him to see it all finished so he could lie down easy, you know. It was a race against time, and that made it doubly frustrating. And I couldn't get an ending, and I couldn't get an ending. And one night, Don Elias and I took a bus uptown, and for some reason, he decided we should get off a block early. We got off, we came up out of the subway, we came up like in a cloud of steam on somewhere in the late 40s or the early 50s, at about 8th Street, I think, or something. We look ahead, and two blocks up the street, you see this group of pimps standing there. You know they're pimps, they all got the same hat on, broad brimmed, light colored with a dark ribbon on it. So I'm curious, I say, what are they looking at, you know? And it's right on our route. So we go walking up to this place. It's under a red and black striped awning that this is taking place. Red and black striped awning, circle of pimps. Two little kids, they were the first paupers I'd ever seen. One was about nine, one was about 12, and it was about midnight. They're up in the street and they're dancing, like doing all of this robot action. And these pimps are laughing, and one of these guys slaps his thigh, bends over and says, well, it looks like the end of tap dancing, he says. And I suddenly I got this picture, these kids were like the new growth, you know. I thought, you know, even with Lester gone and Charlie going, there's always something innovative coming along, because this looked, I'd never seen this dance. And just then I looked up, and the next bar down in red script said Charlie's. So I took it to be an omen, you know, and I turned to Don, I said, this is my last verse, so I got very alert. And I we stood there for a while laughing, watching these kids dance. And as we turned to leave, I took one glimpse back. And you know what it said on the red and black striped awning? Pork Pie Hat Bar. The name it's of the named bar. After Leslie, yeah. yeah. So one night we went into this bar. I, I kept pestering to, to take me in there. Well, it was in a tough neighborhood. And it was like where the pimps, when they have their women around on the corner, you know, they go in. So it wasn't exactly place for a blonde woman to be going. And I kept pestering Dawn, you know, to take me in there for a long time. Finally, one winter's day, we pulled into the parking lot next door, and he said, okay, he just, we're going in. We went into this place, it had a red and a blue light bulb, or a red and green or something, you know, some kind of like bohemian lighting. Black and white posters of Lester all around the place. There was a Lester Young record playing on the jukebox as we came in. In the back were all these pimps with their hats on, completely immobile, playing backgammon and chess, just so cool that they didn't ruffle anything. They looked like they were cut out of cardboard. And the whole place was full of this kind of beigey smoke. And up the central aisle, the only thing that was moving aside from, was this guy, the same guy, this was nearly a year later, that said, looks like the end of tap dancing. And he was just tapping up a storm. Up and down the aisle, he kept dancing up and down the aisle. And behind the bar was a guy who was kind of pear-shaped. He looked like he, like a, what do you call it, an endomorph? He had small shoulders and was given to putting on fatty tissue. He must have had some female hormones in him. You know what I mean? He, he just had like sort of, his, anyway, he was wiping a glass behind the bar and there was one woman in there. It was all men in there, all pimps in there. It was a pimp bar, right? But it was so colorful in all this. And it was, my God, what a... With a sign from Subway. Yeah. We came up from the subway on the music midnight mains to Charlie's bass and Lester's saxophone in taxi horns and brakes. Now Charlie's down in Mexico with the so the sidewalk leads us with music to do little dancers dancing outside a black bar. There's a sign up on the awning. It says pork pie hat bar. I've been working on a different kind of project for me. 
put down my instruments and uh, I've been writing words to Charlie Mingus's music. This is a song, uh, imagine yourself in Las Vegas with sheets and sheets of flickering neon, okay? Suppose you see um, Wayne Newton walking along the street in a wig and a flyless suit. Uh, Frank Sinatra snapping his fingers, followed by a whole chorus line in ostrich plumes. This is, this is the American dream. This guy went to Vegas and could not lose. Plus, he was a man of humble origins. He managed a dry cleaning establishment in Des Moines, Iowa. He picked out a booth at Circus Circus where the cowgirls filled the room with their big balloons. The cleaner was pitching with purpose. He had dinos and pooh bears and lions, pink and blue there. He could not lose there. He's lucky. The cat's lucky. It's all luck, it's just lucky. You get a little lucky and you make a little money. Dumboin was stacking the chips, raking off the tables, ringing the bandits' bells. This is a story that's a drag to tell. In some ways, since I lost every dime, I laid on the line, bought the cleaner from Des Moines, could put a coin in the door of a John and get 20 for one. It's just luck. The dry cleaner from Des Moines touches on a similar mentality that anyone facing death might resign themselves to. Well, maybe I'll get lucky. Look at that sign. Look at that guy. All this while knowing the odds are against you. It's a light-hearted song until you start to apply a more psychoanalyzed meaning to it, particularly the circumstance of its writer. Some people have all the luck. Joni the instrumental, he stated that it would be about gambling. Mingus declared himself an expert slots player, proclaiming frequent wins. I followed him down the strip. He picked out a booth at Circus Circus where the cowgirls filled the room with their big balloons. The cleaner was pitching with her piss. Dinos and pooh bears and lions, pink and blue there. He couldn't lose them. Joni wasn't just writing her own lyrics of even Mingus's epitaph. She was taking facets of his personality and turning them into diamonds. The alternate mix seems to have more horns peppered throughout, in a much more reverberated presentation. There are also a few synth stabs accompanied by a completely different vocal performance from Joni. Other than a few additions or changes made to the multi-track, the song appears to have always been structured the same, a very clear, consistent vision for its final product.
lucky man god bless me you know i was blessed by god while most on the album would lyrically have some level of association with charles sweet sucker dance seems to deviate from the central theme if anything it would have been more appropriate on don juan's reckless daughter than mingus that however didn't seem to be an issue for the man himself the first section seems to be an internal monologue of one assessing their own depressive state and the potential effect such mentality could have on their partner. I almost closed the door Cancelled on everything we opened up for Posing criticisms of love, revoking it to something undertaken by fools, and perhaps trivialising it to only a dance. Something fleeting, something in the moment. But by using a dance as a metaphor, it acknowledges the symbiotic nature of these feelings. Since I was fool enough to find romance, I'm trying to convince myself. This is just a dance We move in measures Through love's changing faces Needy and nonchalant Greedy and gracious Through petty dismissals and Joni continues the movement metaphor, now assigning characteristics. Needy and nonchalant, one's exterior different from their interior. Greedy and gracious, a successful but appreciated outcome of one's own yearning. As would be repeated to close out the song, this section contains generalizations of a diversity of circumstances. Whatever can be assigned to an individual, by the end, most of us get through it. We're all survivors. Like it was only a dance. We are survivors. Some get broken, some get mended. Some can't surrender. In this part, we're given further insight into the relationship. For whatever reason, the narrator's partner is away, leaving them to dance by themselves. Tonight's A Dance of Insecurity is seemingly a description of the necessity of having that counterpart around to undergo the activity with conviction. We're dancing fools, you It's my solo while you're away. Shadows have the saddest things to say. Why do we go out and get it Just to turn around and hurt it Like we're scared to care It's hard 
questioning the integrity of the person's feelings of love. What's brought their thoughts to this is hard to decipher, especially as it leads into the next part. highlighting her man's character. This time, it doesn't come across as though love is merely a dance, but the one she loves makes that dance so easy. Charles was teaching me the melodies. He played me a lot of things of his that had been done by different people, and he was constantly saying, he playing the wrong note. That's the wrong note. So I got brainwashed with the wrong note, the wrong note, the wrong note. Well, when it came to writing this one song called Sweet Sucker Dance, at the end of a phrase, when I got my words on it, it was supposed to go, ba 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 da do do to a blue note, like ends up on, you know, and the way the words were, it sounded better if I went right to o open it up. So Charlie, I go and I sing it that way, and Charlie says to me, "You sing in the wrong note." I said, "I know, but Charlie, if you listen to the word, it seems better if it goes up than if it goes to a blue note to me." And he said, "But that's a square note." I said, "Well, you know, Charlie, your note's been hip so long it's not that it's square now, like you know, and this one's been square so long." That it's hip now. And he looked at me, he gave me a real wry look, and he said to me, Okay, motherfucker, you sing your note and my note and put in a grace note for God. <laughs> <laughs> While most songs on the album would be based on compositions by Charles Mingus, towards the end of production, as his health was further declining, Joni would need to contribute more of her own. We went out to supper, uh, a big group of people, after the show last night, and came back into the hotel, and it, there were people singing in the lobby and people were singing in the bar. I met Tim in the bar and he said, Hello, Joni, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine, Tim. And he said, what are you drinking? I said, one wine, one wine. And the waiter behind the bar said, one wine, one wine. Like this, it's like every place we went, everybody was on, you know. So for about three days, I mentioned this to Henry Louis, uh, my partner in crime in, in uh, the records, uh, that I needed some wolf sounds for this particular song. So last night I was at a gathering of people and a guy happened to bring up out of nowhere the fact that a friend of his had just recorded some wolves up in some place northern. So I, I said, oh, you gotta send me a tape of that. He said, I got it right here. So, um, seek and you shall find, I guess. These convenient circumstances gave rise to The Wolf That Lives in Lindsay. Of the darkness in men's minds Why 
of howling and the saturated reverb on the guitar gives the mix a more tense personality, perhaps accentuated by the fact that Joni and percussionist Don Elias recorded the track live. Overdubs of keys and the ever-important woof sounds would be added to the song at a later point. The described character Lindsay is used as a portrait of the darkness that resides in a man's mind, represented by that of a wolf. His grandpa loved an empire His sister loved a thief And Lindsay loved the ways of darkness Beyond belief Girls in chilly blouses The blizzards come and What's painted is a caricature of someone engaged with morally questionable activities, perhaps stemming from a less than perfect upbringing. A victim of lacking role models, a common cause for darkness. The cops don't seem to care For derelicts or ladies of the night There weeds for yanking out of sight If you're smart or rich or lucky Maybe you'll be Corruption, cronyism, criminality. Perhaps temporarily auspicious, but ultimately, the human employed becomes less human. They're more removed from what should be considered important in life, including themselves. There lives a wolf in Lindsay that raids and runs through the hills of Hollywood and the downtown slums. He gets away with murder. Lizards come and that lives in Lindsay is also out of place on the album. 
it's perfectly suited to the lyrics of Hegira or the experimental instrumentation of Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, which is around the time it was first conceived. But it clearly had its essential approval from Mingus, and why wouldn't it? The song isn't her most famous or best, but it is everything that makes Joni Mitchell great. Joni would write in the album's liner notes, Charles Mingus, a musical mystic, died in Mexico January 5, 1979 at the age of 56. He was cremated the next day. That same day, 56 sperm whales beached themselves on the Mexican coastline and were removed by fire. These are the coincidences that thrill my imagination. My process of learning has been peculiar. I don't have the right kind of brain for an academic. I learn most intensely by admiration. If I admire something or am interested in something, I become very alert and I take in a lot all at once and it stores and then it mulches and it sifts down. The last song recorded for the project was God Must Be a Boogeyman, the only track that Charles never got to hear. Like a chair in the sky, it was based on the opening pages of Mingus's autobiography. And that seems to be the perfect surmise of Joni's relationship with Charles. Song was attempted with three different bands. One night when Mitchell was mixing one of those versions, revolutionary bassist and significant Joni collaborator Jaco Pastorius requested to play on it. Creating a more stripped back mix, this is the version that opens the album. An epitaph that, even for Joni, was imperfect, but was enough to capture the spiritual and humid nature of the legendary Charles Mingus. Why'd he let him talk him down to cheap work and cheap thrills? In the plan, ooh, the insulting plan. God must be a boogeyman. God must be a It's almost hard to think of Mingus as a Charles Mingus album. Joni Mitchell never had been produced before and, in a sense, still hadn't with that project. Ultimately, she had her choice with the band that was featured on the final product, having tried several versions with several bands chosen by Charles himself. We tried a lot of different bands, but it kept coming out kind of traditional and Jocko finally said to me, you know, what are you doing that old tired stuff for? Your work's more progressive. And I went, oh, do you really think so? You know, because they never told me they thought it was progressive or what they thought. They just came in and played. The ethics behind that decision are questionable. But the final product is a best-intentioned collaborative apostolum that will forever hold significance in the catalogues of two great artists. Which would it be, Mingus one or two? Which one do you think he'd want the world to see? Well, world opinions not a lot of help. When a man's only trying to find out how to feel about himself. 
in the plan. Oh, the cockeyed plan. God must be a Thank you for listening to John Cameron's Musicology. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or sharing on social media.